Hi, this is Leah Hechtman. Despite advances in our understanding of the microbial, hormonal and immunological drivers behind endometriosis, the pain associated with this condition often persists, even after treatment. We now know that people with endometriosis have fundamental neurological and neuropathic differences in how they perceive and handle pain. Join me live online on Wednesday, June 7th for Bioceuticals Clinical Mastery, the neuropsycho basis of endometriosis. In this 90-minute session, I'll be diving deep into neurocircuitry, pain perception, neuroangiogenesis, and the underlying pain mechanisms of endo. I'll also be including a case study to demonstrate how my research and clinical approach could translate into clinical practice for you. Go to bioceuticals.com.au to reserve your place today. Hi, and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, where we live and work, and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I'm Emma Sutherland, a Sydney-based naturopath, I'm extremely excited to be speaking with Leah Heckman, a name who many of you will recognise as a powerhouse of knowledge within the natural health sector. Leah specialises in fertility, pregnancy and reproductive health for men and women. She is also a university lecturer, keynote speaker, author, educator and mentor to her peers. She is currently completing her PhD through the School of Women's and Children's Health at the University of New South Wales and is the author of Clinical Naturopathic Medicine and Advanced Clinical Natural Medicine. Welcome to FX Medicine, Leah. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's our pleasure. Now, endometriosis affects one in nine women, and unfortunately, it does take an average of six and a half years for a woman to be diagnosed. It's often mm. under-recognised and, and misdiagnosed. And as we learn in the episode with Natasha, who was the patient in our series on endometriosis, pain is so impactful. In fact, pain is the most common symptom in endometriosis. And today I want to deep dive into pain, trauma and their role in endometriosis. Sounds good. Let's do it. Let's do it. Exactly. So let's cover some basics. Can you talk us through pain perception, pain interpretation and pain wiring? Can you give us the rundown on that? Absolutely. So if it's okay with you, let's just, if you don't mind if I lay the scene. No, that's good. Everything that you've talked about, that I've talked about, that we know about endometriosis as drivers for it are still incredibly valid. I don't want anyone to think that we're all of a sudden saying there's a whole new justification or explanation for endometriosis. Mm. It's about the understanding of how it all develops and what actually happens for the body. Mm -hmm. And so you and I both know, yeah, you've got the patient, the example that you gave of Natasha. Mm. They experience all these things. Something has occurred for them that has driven their body to develop endometriosis itself, mm. but their experience of the pain can be one of the initial symptoms, but is certainly the enduring symptom. And the thing that I found clinically is that 
you can sort out all of the things that drove the disease in the first place, Mm. but they're often left with the memory of the pain. So their perception of the pain is distinguished by whether or not it's what they experience at the early onset of diagnosis or even pre-diagnosis versus during disease, during the flares of their endometriosis flares versus Mm. once actually everything's been addressed. And they can still have the pain that's enduring possibly even lifelong. I mean, I don't know that definitively. I just know that in my experience, I'll have women Mm -hmm. and I'll support them, we'll address everything. And even postmenopausally, they're still experiencing the pain, but there's no evidence of endometriosis anymore. So we're starting to talk about how it's actually affected their brain, essentially, the neurocircuitry, how their nervous system has accommodated the experience of the pain itself. Mm, That's fascinating. And I think a new concept for us to explore because it's not one that uh, as clinicians we are super familiar with. So, Mm. yeah, that pain interpretation and the pain wiring becomes altered in women with endometriosis. Essentially, yeah. yeah. I think one of the things that I found most fascinating when I, you know, really started to explore endometriosis as a clinician was how we would diagnose endometriosis and the progression of the disease was completely different to the experience of pain. Mm. So you'd have the woman sit in front of you, she'd be diagnosed as stage four, severe, affecting, you know, multiple organs right through her whole peritoneal cavity. And she wouldn't feel a thing versus the woman who would have extreme pain, couldn't be intimate with her partner, couldn't walk, couldn't exercise, couldn't sleep, couldn't leave the house when she had a period and barely a grade one. And so then you have to start to look at it and go, what is the difference between these women and Mm. what is the difference around how their nervous system is actually organized and how the communication of the signaling of that pain, how they're interpreting that pain and then how their brain is accommodating that pain as they progress through it. And it's quite fascinating when you start to look at the variables that influence it, Mm -hmm. you know, age of onset, severity of the disease, severity of the experience of the disease and support of their caregivers, support of their family, support Mm. of their partners. Like there's all of these mind-body connection pieces and emotional aspects that go with it and certainly, which I know we'll get into later, you know, the, the aspect of trauma and how that influences whether or not they actually feel in their body. And that's where I'm really fascinated, I guess, as a clinician and as a researcher at the moment with it. Yeah. And I think that dichotomy of the woman who has stage one diagnosed, but then extreme pain, I've always looked at that clinically and found it confusing. And and this is so exciting that there's an insight here that can explain that anomaly, because it's not only confusing for the patient, it's confusing for the clinician. Absolutely. And I always cross my fingers. Like if any of my patients go, no, 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 it's a decision. We need to do a laparoscopy. We need to do surgery. I'm kind of sitting there crossing my fingers going, please find something substantial and make it worthwhile. Because there's nothing worse than a woman going through a surgery for endometriosis. And then they kind of go, oh, well, there really wasn't anything there. Um, That's just totally demoralizing and destructive for her and her experience of life and her confidence in her Mm. own mind-body connection. Yeah, yes, it's completely invalidating. That's right. When we're, word. Yeah, when we're looking at brain structure and function with women mm. that experience chronic pelvic pain, what changes mm. tend to occur? What happens in the brain? The language that I use with my patients is that, you know, your pain fibres and your pain processing is like a well-trodden track. So if we take it down to inflammation before mm. we sort of go into the pain wiring, 
So with inflammation, we know that collectively as a, you know, just a race of humankind, we're all having more and more inflammation for various reasons, environmental, emotional, stressors, you name it, there's a whole host of reasons that are driving inflammation. But inflammation we know is a sequelae driver for endometriosis. So Mm. it sets up this whole neuromodulatory process within the brain that this inflammation pain cycle sets up. And until the woman actually addresses all of the inflammation, that circuitry doesn't settle itself down. But then once that pain cycle and that pain wiring has actually been laid down, it's a track that her body goes from zero to 10 Mm. in a heartbeat, whereas at the beginning it went from zero to one, maybe zero to two. You know, your endo women are the women that you sit clinically with and you go, so can you tell me what was your period pain like last month? And they go, well, 10. Mm. And you're like, but wasn't it a little bit better? And they're like, yeah, you know, I could go out, I could do this, but the pain was still 10. Right. And it's not that it's in their head and it's Mm. not that they're making it up and none of those things, but it's that the body has this ability of it's gone from zero to 10 and it's done that for so long that the brain's interpretation of that pain goes to 10 immediately. And so much of what we need to be thinking about is the structure of the brain, the interpretation of pain, the interpretation of fear of that pain, the interpretation and resistance of impending pain Mm. becomes a cycle and it's a self-fulfilling cycle in their bodies. So they interpret, you know, it's day 28, I'm about to get my period, I'm going to be in terrible pain and all the signalling in their brain goes, crisis coming. And that's both the trauma of the experience of pain Mm. and the fact that their brain has probably been rewired and set up for that pain from prior traumas that may or may not have been endometriosis related. Right. So Does that make sense? It it does make sense. My brain is rapidly thinking and what I'm thinking, if I can talk out loud, is Mm. that it is that repetitive process that wires in that pain pathway to be the most easiest pathway to be activated and the most efficient pathway is in that pain pathway. That's the automatic default that Mm -hmm. gets pressed at that time. Mm. And that gets wired deeper and deeper the more often it happens until the point where it happens at a smaller trigger Mm. will get a 10 out of 10. Yes. It's an irritation hypothesis. Like when you start looking at some of the the research and the papers out there, you know, they talk about this irritation, sensitization, mm. pro-inflammatory driver, you know. So this idea of any time there's inflammation in any environment and these women are walking around with inflammation around those areas, mm. any tiny sensitization to that area triggers a whole cascade of events. Yeah, And that's often why they have so much discomfort when they're intimate with partners and things like that as well mm. because that area has so much hypersensitive neuronal fibres yeah. that it, they're just reactivating all the time. Okay, and there's there's so many questions that I've got. We all do. We all do, and it's it's an unfolding area. And yeah, absolutely, okay. as a caveat, you know, you and I can talk in two years, and we'll be like, right, now we know this bit, mm. but at the moment, this is what we know. But one thing, if it's okay, it's really about acknowledging that, you know, we know that in periods of transition for all women, their brain restructures, and we know that certain sections of their brain will get sh- smaller, certain sections will enlarge, and it's dependent on hormonal drivers, but yeah. it's also dependent on your neurological output. And we know that in women with endometriosis, their brain shape changes and certain sections are certainly much more activated on MRI studies. Mm, And in particular, their fear receptors and their frontal lobe activation and things along those lines are completely different because of that perpetual pain cycle. Mm. 
Yeah. I mean, that's total survival response, right? It makes absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we, we fear the things that cause pain and that, that gets ingrained again and again. And, you know, what sort of underlies that pain wiring in endometriosis? Like how does it happen initially and then what can we do about it? And that's such a big question, but any insights would be great. Mm. Yeah, no, for sure. With the pain wiring, it's it's a number of different aspects, but when you look through the research at the moment, and certainly when I correlate it clinically, it's inflammation, yeah? Mm. So inflammation is the number one driver, and then that sets off the wiring, it you know derails the wiring, and it sets up inappropriate neurocircuitry within the brain okay. or within any of the pain fibers. But that inflammation can be driven by a whole host of things, which is what we have been focusing on clinically, yeah. you know, be mm. it progesterone resistance, be it increased secretion or increased up- uptake or unopposed estrogen, mm. be it infective driver, be it microbial imbalance or microbiome deficiency. All of those things are driving the inflammatory process, which is why We've spent so long at reducing inflammation systemically. Yeah. But the, the newer research is around looking at it and going, well, that inflammation, if it perpetuates, it perpetuates the pain, but then it also drives all of the growth aspect of endometriosis, like the endometriomas and the unfortunate scenarios where it progresses to cancers and things and mm-hmm. DNA damage. But it's still coming from that place where it's literally like their brain is inflamed and their mm-hmm. whole nervous system is inflamed, which is moving it forward continuously. Yeah. And so as clinicians, we have been working on all what we thought were the drivers, which is the right thing to be doing. Yeah. The question is, how do we start working on this bigger picture of the neurocircuitry? I think we have to acknowledge a few things. So one is that we're limited by where research is at at the moment, Mm. but it's incredibly fast at how fast it's moving. And when you start looking at all of the AI interventions and AI developments in research around neuroplasticity, we're going to get there quite quickly. So what we understand at the moment, though, is that the concept of neuroplasticity is the ability for the nervous system to reorganize itself, for parts of the brain to regrow, redevelop, rewire, redo everything, essentially. Mm. And our entire nervous system has the capacity to be able to do that. As clinicians, we need to look at it and we need to go, okay, so I've ticked all my boxes. I've ticked all of the initial drivers. I think I've got a pretty good grasp of the inflammation from a a driven perspective, Mm. but there is the residual inflammation and there is the residual old tissue. And one of the challenges I find with chronic inflammation is the damaged tissue perpetuates the inflammatory response. And it's about how do I clean up that old tissue? So that's where we come in and we look at vascularization and coagulation and all that. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah. But once we've sorted through the inflammation and we've sorted through the, the damaged inflammation, we can start looking at the repair process. And so the repair process is looking at what are the strategies that I can do to support the brain and the nervous system to repair itself mm. and how can I retrain it? And so much of it is around the retraining. And the retraining might be using a herb it mm-hmm. might be using a nutrient. And the language I use with patients is, is I'm going to give you something so that your body learns the experience of not feeling this anymore so that we can start to work on the neuroplasticity at the same time and enable the repair. Mm-hmm. But we always need a buffer. You know, I always used to be incredibly anti-pain medication, for example. Yeah. And then I was like, well, I'm just perpetuating a neurological response if I don't enable 
the pain medication in a healthy way mm. because I don't want to keep that pain there and the memory of that pain there. Yeah. So it removes the intensity of the experience, yeah. not necessarily through pharmaceuticals. We've got beautiful herbs that can do it as well. Mm. And then start looking at how can I repair the nervous system and what are the ingredients to do that. Within that, we do need to dive into the whole you know, endocannabinoid system and the research that we've got around that and the repair pathways that come from that too. Yeah. So to me, it sounds a little bit in like in a simplistic term, like exposure therapy, that we need to reduce the pain so that the perception is that it's not as painful. So we can come out of that well-trodden zero to 10 pathway uh, a little bit Absolutely. more. Yeah. Absolutely. But then we have to fix the damaged tissue because mm. as soon as we take that anti-inflammatory agent out or that herb that reduces the pain out, that path is still there. Yes. So we have to retrain the brain. And the retraining the brain can be as simple as, you know, this is where all the the cognitive behavioral therapy comes in, where mindfulness comes in, where meditation comes in, where binaural beats come in and all the wave therapy and the brain changes or any of the neurocircuitry work that we know that really does work beautifully, but doing it in conjunction with the agents that actually help the body to support itself and heal itself mm. is where the magic starts happening. Yes. So there's, there's a lot of work, isn't there, involved in as far as, you know, mm. treating those things that we've been focusing on to date and then getting to this point where you need to start working on that brain pain neurocircuitry level. But you mentioned yeah. before about the impact of vascularization and coagulation challenges with endometriosis. Can you just touch on that for us for a minute? Absolutely. Women with endometriosis always have a coagulation imbalance, whether or not it's entirely detectable through various you know, markers on pathology mm. or whether or not it's just an experience and a diagnosis based on, you know, you shouldn't be bleeding as much as you're bleeding and there mm. shouldn't be that many clots in your blood and that sort of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, all women with endo have thermoregulatory disruption. You know, they'll have cold hands and feet generally. They'll have stagnant blood through Chinese medicine language. Yeah. You know, they'll have disruption of where that goes through their body. And they'll all experience headaches and migraines for various you know, degrees of severity, but their blood doesn't move through their body quite the same way. Mm. So if you've got that inflammation, which then, you know, my visual brain goes inflammation, swelling to the area, blood can't move just from the swelling. Yeah. And then you've got old inflammatory tissue, which is dead and damaged tissue, which literally from a vascular perspective is occluding the vascular structure mm. to an extent and not permitting blocking the ability of blood to pass through that area properly. And then you've got the particles and the fragments that are coming off from that vascular aspect. And then that makes that coagulation process more difficult. Then you you bring in, you know, the iron deficiency and the inability of the blood pressure to Mm. be rapid enough to move things through the body. But you've got all of these other aspects that, you know, on a very sensorial level Mm. that are interfering with the process. When you dive into the research, though, most women will have abnormalities with VEGF or Mm. um, abnormalities with other inflammatory markers and coagulation markers because that's how the disease works, you know. And my brain sort of maps it and goes, well, because there's generally an infective driver, there are byproducts of all of those infective sequelae Mm. that are then occluding and are obstructing the movement of blood. Mm -hmm. It's 
I think it's about, you know, looking at these women and kind of going, if we reduce all of those aspects, get blood moving through their body, then we can start to see what's underneath it. Yes. And that's where we can really see the damage and make the difference. Yeah. And that is a pattern that you do see in clinical practice, you know, women with clotty periods, cold hands and feet, the headaches, mm. the iron deficiency, the low blood pressure. So, you know, you can see that play out clinically. So it's really mm. great to get those kind of little highlights there. Mm. Now, I read the paper that you sent to me on inflammation in endometriosis and adenomyosis, and I actually found it fascinating. I have adenomyosis, so I really hooked Mm. in on this. But, you know, the inflammation is not just localised but also systemic, which has Mm. far-reaching impacts, cardiovascular system, atherosclerosis. But what I'd really love to know is what biomarkers you use clinically to assess and track inflammation levels. Because we've talked a bit about inflammation and it is something that is so pertinent, but how do we track and monitor it? I think that there's there's a couple of different things to be mindful of here. So mm. when you've got patients and, you know, I always I've used this analogy many times, but I always say to my patients, there are three versions of answers you're going to get from me. <laughs> There's the researcher that wants to research everything, wants to test everything, wants numbers. There's the clinician that has the human connection with you and wants the clinical outcome. And then there's the human that also has a mortgage and financial limitations. (laughs) Let's find out what we need to test so that we can actually work out what's going to give you the best outcome. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to test every interleukin for every patient and TGF alpha and TGF beta and all the chemoclines and all the VEGFs and all that sort of stuff. It may be outside of budget for some patients. And what I always sort of look at Mm. is, is it going to change how I clinically manage you? Mm. I do think CA125, not in the follicular phase, it has to be luteal. CA125 is a really good diagnostic and it's not that expensive mm. and can be through Medicare if medical professionals are referring. Yeah. But I think that some of the interleukins and all those ones, I just don't know if they change my treatment enough to warrant the expense. Mm. I find them fascinating. I find, you know, if a patient goes to me that says everything, then absolutely I want to see it. But, I mean, you know, different things like stool calprotectin can yeah. give us a, a really good insight from an inflammatory perspective or even zonulin, mm. um, you know, an inflammatory perspective within the digestive system and then that can correlate with it. You know, good old CRP and ESR and immunoglobulins and the IgG subsets and all of those other things will give us an insight on, you know, the immune influence to the inflammatory process. Mm. But I think from a diagnostic perspective and how that translates clinically, yeah. it's really about identifying what are the symptoms? You know, like, are they presenting with cardiovascular diseases or cardiovascular abnormalities? Well, I do need to check, and you know, a high-sensitive CRP, for example. Like, trying to delineate it based on the system of the body, I think, is really important. Yeah, and inflammation can be like, try and find a needle in a haystack sometimes when you're oh, God, testing. Yes. So... I you know, symptoms are, of course, the most important thing. And, and looking at some well-researched markers, you know, CA125, I think is such a great one in this space. Mm. But yeah, looking at the body systems affected and then kind of diving down that side of things from a biomarker mm. perspective. Now we're going to dive into the role of trauma. Leia specialises in trauma and endometriosis and her clinical experience may not be relative to us all. Please be mindful to refer cases that are outside your scope of practice and be aware that this part of the episode contains sensitive content. Now let's move on to trauma. I would love you to, first of all, define trauma and what is its role in that mind-body connection in women's health because obviously it's 
big and it's something that we haven't really dived into before. So I'm super excited to um, have this conversation. Oh, look, I don't think we have enough time to do it, Justin. (laughs) It's so big. Yeah. Look, with trauma, okay, so let's get a few of the base parameters out there. Mm -hmm. We all experience trauma, yeah? So we're not just talking about people that have an incredibly traumatic sexual abuse scenario or something like that. Mm. Obviously, there there is definitely a correlation with women with endo and sexual abuse histories. The data is somewhere between 80 and 95% of cases of women with endo have a history of some sort of sexual trauma. Um, But it does mean that any trauma. And the thing that I always find most fascinating, you know, like when you you dive into the research around trauma and you look at how to process it for people, Mm. you may have a memory when you were three or four years of age where you didn't have narrative language, but mum didn't pick you up on time and you were on your own. Mm. And that created a traumatic experience for you as a three or a four-year-old. And that memory in your brain created a schema, so a way of learning and a way of interpreting the world, Mm. and then added memory after memory after memory to create a construct of how you see the world through that trauma lens. So it's about the simplicity of it, but also the, you know, the extent that it can go to. Mm. Absolutely, we're going to have women that have had horrendous, violent experiences that we can see how it correlates with endometriosis. Mm. And then we can have really simple scenarios. And Gabor Mate, who's beautiful with trauma work, he talks about big trauma, sorry, um, big T trauma and little T trauma. Mm. Um, Stephen Levine talks about trauma through the narrative lens. Tara Brack talks about it. Like there's so many beautiful people that have wonderful language around it. But fundamentally what we're talking about is the inability to be present in the moment and to be able to regulate your experience of your reality, Mm. which everyone can relate to. Yes, yeah? yes. We can all relate to it. We're all works in progress. We're all trying to be better humans. We're all trying to do the best that we can in this experience. But with women with endometriosis and certainly with women with women's health, you'll often see that there's a correlation with a silencing of them as a female, a process where their their feminine self hasn't felt safe, a process where they've felt betrayed either by themselves or somebody else, mm-hmm. an inability to express the extent of their femininity. And that's usually where it tends to develop in their reproductive system. But, I mean, we can go as deep as you want into all of this, but, you know, like I have a belief that various parts, certainly various parts of the body, but various parts of the female anatomy will correlate with different ways and different levels with which each of those women can connect to greater senses of themselves. So women that, for example, will have endometriosis that will occlude their cervix Mm -hmm. will often correlate with cervical trauma, which will correlate with an inability to extend and encompass all of themselves and really be as big as they can be, for want of a better example. Mm. Yeah, it's really fascinating, isn't it? And I think this work is something that we definitely need to have a good black book um, Mm. clinically. We need to know Mm. when to refer and who to refer to. But what, what are you finding in, what are you seeing in clinical practice that led you to this angle of trauma and endometriosis? Because it is a bit of a novel angle and you know this space so well, but what was it, what were the patterns you were seeing clinically that made you think there's something else? I've never had a patient with endometriosis that hasn't had a negative experience. Right. And I find that there is this, and this is my patience, and that doesn't mean every woman with endo, so that's my caveat. Mm. But I find that 
all had some sort of experience. The people that I see, there tends to be some form of either that they had some form of abuse or that they were intimate with someone and they stepped outside their body and weren't entirely empowered. But it set up this safety challenge in them. And so there's this feeling of feeling unsafe, this anxiety that they can't manage and this sense of foreboding or fear of what will come. Mm. And so because of that, they have that foreboding of their pain. And so it's in dual process. But safety is such a big piece for them. And I guess the most beautiful thing, though, is that as they do the work that they need to do, they become so much bigger than they ever imagined that they could, you know, as they work through their endometriosis and they work through all the aspects of it. And, Mm. you know, so much of endometriosis is that denial of self-care and that that distance of really listening to themselves and taking care of themselves the way that they need to and speaking up for what their needs are. Mm. And as they navigate that process and as they address their their symptoms and then they rewire their brain, the, the rewiring is around that they are safe and that they can take care of themselves. Mm. So it's, you know, like I've got a whole group of women that are all trying to come off a group of pharmaceuticals that have been prescribed to them for pain, for example, Mm -hmm. and every single one of them is managing their own sense of lack of safety. Okay. Every single one of them has all had some form of sexual trauma. It might be the people that I attract. I don't know. Yeah. But this is what I'm seeing. And this is really interesting. So what if a woman is not aware of the trauma? but you suspect there may be something underneath because obviously trauma gets buried deep a lot of the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And if they're not consciously aware that there may be trauma there, what would you do? Well, number one is don't rip the bandaid off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it, don't rip the bandaid off and don't try and be, you know, the clinician that tells them that everything's wrong with them. You know, mm. No one is helped from that process. It's about first looking at yourself honestly and going, what skills do I need to acquire or what referral network do I need to develop? If firstly, are you comfortable looking at trauma? Have you looked at what's in the dark closet for yourself Mm. so that you know this territory and this terrain? And if you haven't, do some work on yourself Mm. and also make sure that you have a good referral network that you can work with, you know, like people that do EMDR, people that do Mm. various types of therapy. There are so many different modalities, but for so long, I've always found that there's the importance of the visceral aspects of endometriosis, you know, the reconnection of our patients to their bodies, Mm. the ability for them to feel again. But, you know, so much of the initial groundwork that needs to be done is the relationship that we develop with them, that they have someone that they trust, that they have someone that they know that is there for them, that is supportive of them, that is not giving up on them, not telling them it's in their head, not telling them go drug yourself with some really strong analgesic and, you know, can sort yourself out later. Mm. That's listening to them and that's helping them. And just that relationship of safety enables them to feel like they can start to open that cupboard and see what's inside. And and really interesting about the, um, because what I've been seeing clinically in the last 12 months, I'd say, is an increase prescription of antidepressants for women in this space. And I don't know if that's been driven by other factors, but I have noticed this trend and I'm just not comfortable with it because women are coming in saying that 
it's in their head. You know, they've been told it's in their head. And Mm. I, I just think that there is opportunity here to have really good conversations with patients yes. in a safe environment around, well, you know, have you thought about it in a different way? You know, you have endometriosis. There is this thing with your brain and pain and, you know, we may need to look at it a bit differently. But there's two pieces to that. So I think that one is that some of these antidepressants and anxiolytics do have neuronal benefit. So they'll have a retraining capacity to them. So some clinicians are referring these prescriptions because it's to help them manage their pain. Some of them, they're like, it's in your head. And some of them, it's like, you're really not functioning well. Let's Mm. help you function with life. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing I always look at, antidepressants, anxiolytics, antidepressant herbs, any of these things, what I often find with women with endo and certainly women with a history of trauma in endo, they need containment. And, you know, they have this sense of over-expansiveness and over-sensitivity, not that they are oversensitive and that I'm not believing them, but more that they feel everything mm. so deeply and it's not in their head, but their brain and their nervous system is wired to feel everything and to see everything that's going and to have that, as I was referring to earlier, that idea of that initial reactivity towards something to protect themselves. Mm. That doesn't make it in their head, it's just their nervous system is wired that way. But the thing that the beauty of these drugs, the positives, is that it offers them a containment. So it puts them and it narrows the bandwidth of their experience Mm. neurologically and emotionally. So there's a coping capacity to them. You know, there's an ability to help them cope with life better. But when they put them in that and then they go, see you later, we'll see you after menopause Mm. or we'll turn off your hormones so you don't menstruate, you don't feel anything, and you know, that sort of thing. Mm. It's entirely disempowering. And so then I think as clinicians, we have to look at it and go, how do I help them come off this medication and normalise their felt sense and their experience? Mm, Exactly. And, you know, I know it is dose dependent, lower doses as, you know, often used for the pain and higher doses for the neurological impact. But, Mm. you know, explaining about this hypervigilance response has been developed to keep them safe, I think is, Mm. is a really nice way of framing this information. But, you know, how have you upskilled yourself to support patients with trauma? I mean, obviously you're going to have a good book of referrals to lean on, which we should all develop. And any particular modalities that you see uh, working better in this space from a referral perspective? I think the number one is something where their physical body feels safe. So some form of visceral work that may or may not be pelvic floor physio. Mm. Sometimes I have women where they need to work towards pelvic floor physio because yeah. the idea of someone physically contacting them in those areas is too much. Yeah. But something where there is touch so that they can start to get oxytocin going through their neurological pathways so that they can start to naturally produce their endorphins mm. and start to get the right chemicals coming through. That might just be a hug from someone. Yeah. It might even be a hug from me. I was going to say, I hug yeah, my absolutely. patients. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I, I, you know, like we can argue about it, but you know what? We're all human and we all need hugs. Yeah. Um, but it's this idea of something where there's some touch. I think that's always number one okay. because some people are so traumatized and so dissociated that the idea of talk therapy is like, oh, my God, they can't even process walking in the room they're so overwhelmed by what's going on. Mm. And then I think it's about building them towards what they can tolerate. 
you know, like something like EMDR, which is essentially the eye movement process of hypnosis to reconfigure and re rewire the brain. You know, it's getting the eye movement to move in the direction of where something is stored in the body yeah. and then help helping the, the brain to literally, you know, declutter itself and reorganize memory. Mm. Things like that are phenomenally powerful, mm. but they may not be able to jump there yet, you know, so it might be some form of therapy, whichever modality and which way they want it to be. Yeah. And I actually have, you know, my referral list is massive because I always try and connect the person to the person that I'm referring them to and try and match their energies almost. Yeah, nice. Um, and then it's like, what are they actually able to do right now? It might just be someone that's a counselor that does meditation and breath work. Yeah. And then it might be someone that actually does go all the way down deep into even psychedelics, you know, like yeah. there's all sorts of things that I've referred people for. Yeah, I love that. And I love that the baseline is to start building oxytocin. Like that's a beautiful yeah. place to start. And it yeah. builds that safety uh, sensation as well, which is just amazing. I think, you know, how much caution needs to be taken when you're doing case taking with trauma. I mean, sometimes I feel like you might be opening a can of worms. I think it's a fine line. Definitely. I think if you're a very energetic focused or gut instinct focused, you can pick up a lot from patients when they're not talking. But yeah, where's the boundaries? How do you tease it out? Any pointers in this you know, area? I think it's really important that clinicians are really aware of where they're at in themselves so that yeah. they can use themselves as a barometer so that when they have the interaction with someone that has experienced trauma that's fairly overt and triggering for their health, that they're aware of the sensations in their body and how they feel about it. Mm. If they're not comfortable going there with someone, don't. I have this one question on my question. I'm sure I've said it somewhere in the past. Have you experienced any major stress or trauma or anything like that that you think is affecting your health? Yeah. And I, I keep it at that level because if someone has a lot there and they're obviously wanting to discuss it, I'll go there with them. Mm. But if someone leaves it blank, we don't go there necessarily at the beginning. Yeah. I think the relationship that we build with our patients is the number one thing that it's not that it protects the patient, but it supports them. And it creates a, f a framework and a foundation of how to navigate it. But if we're uncomfortable with anything that's being discussed or said, we can't hold them. No. So really use your own barometer to gauge whether or not it is or isn't appropriate. And don't be inquisitive for inquisitive sake. Because as much as you're like, oh, my God, I, you know, I read this paper and I can <laughs> see that there's a correlation. I've got the answer. No. Yeah. Assume that people that when they've got severe endometriosis and they do have a history of trauma, it's a very delicate, sensitive process that you really need to support. Yeah, yeah. I think sensitivity is huge there. And I love that reminder that we need to become aware of our own triggers if we're not already and yeah. really be okay to be asking those more sensitive questions. And if not, don't go there. Uh, possibly refer mm. at that point to somebody else that can mm. hold space in a way that is supportive uh, and builds that safety sensation with the patient. Mm. Yeah. Any white flags clinically that would make you think that trauma is involved in the case? I mean, there's probably going to be quite a lot, but any things that pop to mind I think anything with the female reproductive system, there is bound to be conversations around sex, around mm. pleasure, around sensation, around experience. 
even if it's just experience around the menstrual cycle. And I find that women invite us. You know, I always joke with my patients where I say, there's pretty much nothing I haven't heard yet <laughs> yeah. and that I haven't been asked and nothing faces me. Yes, yeah, so true. And, and, and I, I always give that statement to them, which is, you know, feel free to ask anything that you've really been wanting to ask someone. Yes. Because go for it. Just do whatever it is that you need. And I, I make jokes and stuff like that, so then they will, but they'll, they'll sort of give you like a little subtle cue of, oh, look, I haven't had a libido, you know, for I don't even know how many years. And you just gently see how far do they want to go with that. Mm. But a woman will will offer you these little points to say, can you go there with me? Can you handle it? And we have the luxury of longer consultations, so we mm. have the luxury of really building that relationship and that trust. But they will always give it to us. We just mm. have to hear it. Yeah, and I'm often surprised clinically how many women are very happy to talk about their libido with me quite openly. Mm. And and I'm saying that, you know, 95% of those women feel their libido is too low. So, but mm. they're very open about talking about it. And I can sense sometimes that they're, they're often almost relieved when I start asking them questions like, you know, well, is there a problem with lubrication? Is sex painful? Mm. They're like, oh, I haven't thought about it like that before. Well, maybe that's why, you know, it really does evolve the conversations to a deeper level. And I can see that that's a good springboard for those mm. deeper conversations to come up where trauma could uh, be discussed. But curiously, you know, how does sexual health and orgasm form part of the recovery from endometriosis? Mm, we could probably talk about that for a day. <laughs> um, sexual health, you know, I think where we're at collectively in society is that we have better language and better discussion around it and much more transparency around it. Mm. But for women to recover, particularly from endometriosis, it's about the humility, the gratitude, the self-support to be comfortable with the concept of pleasure. Mm. And pleasure in all forms, not just sexual, but sexual pleasure is about I deserve to be here, I deserve to be alive, I deserve to experience good things. And that can be an incredibly big hurdle for some women to overcome, mm. particularly when they've had a history of trauma and certainly pain and perpetual pain. But the rewiring of that circuitry, you know, we talked about the idea of oxytocin before. Yeah. But oxytocin that comes from an intimate connection or from orgasm for that matter mm. helps in that rewiring because it re-educates and tells the body this is how you're actually meant to experience it. And it, it's often a very blurry, confusing state for some women, you know, like if they've, let's say, had sexual trauma historically and the confusion of part of it had pleasure and part of it had pain yeah. and then they bundle it together and then they get the blundering, for want of a better word, of the information as it comes through. Mm. But it's about them being comfortable with their body again and trusting their body again and trusting that they can feel good things from their body, not just bad things and not just fear of the bad things. Mm. So it actually becomes a really important part. Yeah. So it's it's pretty empowering for women when they get over that hurdle. And I think the normalization of the language and the support and the encouragement of you deserve to feel good yeah. really helps them enormously. Yeah. And, you know, oxytocin, I mean, that hormone is so incredibly powerful and it is released in huge amounts with an orgasm. And I was just thinking as well, you know, when we orgasm, we have this huge change in blood flow. And that in itself will be such a benefit with pelvic floor health. So interesting, really interesting. And I love that shift of 
how oxytocin can help re-educate the brain uh, mm. and, and, yeah, change that perspective a little bit on my body isn't just pain, it's also pleasure. Um, mm. that, that really makes sense. Oh, we've had such a great conversation. I wanted to just ask you one last question. What are you seeing on the horizon any future trends that we should start thinking about or the future of women's health in naturopathic medicine? Where do you think we're heading? Well, we're, we're entering all the AI area. So mm. I think we all need to be comfortable with the idea of where that will influence things. Mm. Um, I do think that it's going to be influencing tracking and influencing personal data and personal health data yeah. and the ability of analysis of that data. Um, I think we're getting more and more into the research around peptides, bioidentical hormones, the in inverted commas manipulation of the female hormonal management in that context. Mm. Um, I think we're certainly moving all the sexual health aspects, yeah. and I think it's changing a lot with all of the the gender sexual health world mm. and how all of that's changing with comfort of just experiences of pleasure, regardless of historical constructs. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, we're also getting into really exciting times around what we're able to research in the sense of assays and markers, but also in how we can analyze herbs, how we can analyze nutrients mm. and how we can, you know, analyze the development and the understanding of where that biochemistry is going. So really exciting because I think, you know, as you bring AI into assays, for example, mm -hmm. we're going to be uncovering things that we haven't had the technology to be able to even see. Yeah. So, you know, you think about we've got this idea of these are all the hormones and this is how they work. Well, now we're going to be able to use that technology to be able to go, there are other hormones that we didn't have names for, one, but also what we thought was the limitation of that hormone. We now have an understanding of where else it's playing in the body. And I actually think we're going to get there really quickly. You know, like I think about the research that I've done with all of my thesis and things like that. Yeah. The assays for all of those things are going to mind blow us. You know, like we're <laughs> going to be able to assay progesterone secretion from the brain, from the thyroid, from the thymus. We're going to differentiate between what gland has secreted that hormone at what time because we can start to get into the really, really small doses that haven't been detectable. Yeah, so the nuances of that are huge. The nuances, yes. huge. And so our understanding of how it all works is huge. Like we've got science around, you know, neuroplasticity, mm. but we're going to have science around plasticity of every system because we're going to understand the functional units, the hormones, the chemistry of how all of these things work because we can go deeper. So Beautiful, hey? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really so fascinating. And that's, I was just sitting here thinking, gee, I love my industry. You know, mm. We just never stop learning, which is such a joy. Um, yeah. But we, we definitely need to be keeping an open mind, don't we? Because things yeah. might, paradigms might start really shifting on how we thought about things and what we thought we knew um, yeah. and, and what the future's looking like. We are going to have to keep an open mind, keep our curious hats on, as we always do, but keep an open mm. mind to sort of changing the way we think about things. Exactly. Yeah. Beautiful. Neuroplasticity of our own brain. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got to practice on yourself first, right? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. Oh, Leah, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate all those insights that you have given us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Now, it's been such a great conversation. The key points I have taken today 
are this new way of thinking about endometriosis, the impact of pain wiring, inflammation, and the subsequent changes in brain circuitry mean that pain perception is heightened and that once you have addressed the usual suspects in endometriosis, it's time to think deeper about brain neuroplasticity and neuronal repair. And lastly, the importance of being aware of our own trauma when working with women's health. Thank you everyone for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Emma Sutherland. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. FX Medicine is not just a podcast. We also have free articles, infographics, and a monthly email newsletter, all designed to build your clinical expertise. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for our newsletter and get your latest free content.